Would you open up your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 22? Matthew chapter 22, we'll be picking up in verse 15 this morning. Matthew 22, verse 15. It says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus aware of the malice said, why put me to the test? You hypocrites show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him the denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness is on the inscription? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God, the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. Father, we come before you this morning being created in your image. And we ask that we would render the things that are yours to you. And so, Lord, would you have our hearts this morning? Would you have our minds? Would you have our souls, Lord? Cause us to hear your word, Lord. Things that we've never heard before, although they've been spoken over and over again by you, but cause us to hear, cause us to believe, cause us to obey. We would love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we love our neighbor as ourself. And so we just ask these things as we enjoy your presence here. Enjoy your word. Amen. <clears throat> so if you've been following along uh, with us on Sunday mornings, uh, you will recall that I've mentioned that from Matthew 21 to 28, that's dealing with the events of the last week of Jesus's life. Last week of Jesus's life. So these are all events leading up to the cross. Uh, within these events, chapters 1, 21 through 23, they really are focused on the fulfillment of the prophecy that Jesus would be um, betrayed, mistreated, uh, beaten, basically handed over by the leadership of Israel, condemned to death over to the Romans. And so chapters 21 through 23, kind of our Jesus is focusing in on the heart of the leadership of Israel. That's going to betray their own Messiah for crying out loud. And so in verse 15, it says, then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And so after hearing the parables at the end of chapter 21 and the beginning of verse 20, uh, chapter 22, Jesus was speaking parables against the leadership of Israel. Uh, they perceived like, oh yeah, he's speaking about us. They didn't understand the full meaning of it, but they kind of got the gist that uh, the bad guys in the scenario were, were them. And the Pharisees uh, are now plotting to entangle Jesus in his words. Now, as we know, the leadership of Israel, it consisted of, as described here in Matthew 22, of the chief priests, the scribes, actually not in Matthew 22, but from another place, and the elders of Israel, also called the Sanhedrin. Kind of like if we were to say, hey, we've got leadership in the United States. We have the White House. We have, uh, you know, both, both parts of the Senate. Uh, you know, and so we kind of understand that idea. Well, they had 
similar situation going on there. And the, and the Pharisees uh, were the ultra conservatives of Israel. They were the ultra conservatives of Israel. And they were a minority of the 70 elders of Israel, the Sanhedrin. That was the ruling body of, of Israel. And some of them were also scribes. So the scribes were kind of the lawyers of Israel in, in a way. And while the Sadducees, that's another group who we'll get to in a minute. You guys have known, I've kind of repeated this over and over, but uh, while they, the Sadducees controlled the priesthood and the temple, and they were a majority of the elders of Israel, they were a majority of the elders of Israel. It was the Pharisees who were a minority and they actually controlled not the temple, but the local synagogues, the local places where people would actually go to hear the word of God taught. So they controlled a lot of the teaching that was going on in Israel. And therefore the people really revered the, the, uh, the Pharisees. They're the ones who really connected with the local people. The apostle Paul was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee among Pharisees. And you can read about that in the new Testament. But as Jesus pointed out in the three parables that we finished last Sunday, uh, they, along with the leaders, they wanted to own what God, they wanted to own and control what God had entrusted to them as leaders. They looked at themselves as the owners instead of the tenants. They looked at themselves as the one who uh, would receive the worship and the praise and the adoration and all that set of, instead of the ones who were supposed to be directing that back to the Lord, who were supposed to be taking the scriptures and pointing out the realities of what God had commanded his people to, boot, to be and to look forward to and how to live and act and all those things. And instead of redirecting that towards worship to God and right living towards him and, and anticipation of the Messiah, they would take those things and redirect the praise and the worship towards themselves. And that was manifested in the temple that was manifested in the teaching. It was manifested in how they lived and worked and all these things. So there was just a massive corruption going on in Israel through the leadership. And Jesus has now come to the capital. He's not just in the local synagogues where he would interact with the Pharisees and the Sadducees who would kind of come to see him. He's now come to the capital. He's come to the power center and the people are crying out to him, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Lord, save us. They're looking to him. So many of the people are looking to him as the Messiah, the one who would come and save them from their captives, the Romans. That was their view at that time. They're crying out that Jesus walks in. He starts turning over the tables of the money changers. He then starts teaching in ways in, in, in confronting the leadership within Israel in a very direct way, speaking to them about par in parables and the people are starting to get it. And the, so these leaders are confronting Jesus publicly now, and they are at their wits end with him. And Matthew is just taking a snippet of all these things to point out for us what is leading these people to put Jesus on the cross this week. That's what's that's what's going on. So they're at their wits end and each of these little political factions within the leadership. They are now going to take their attempt at trying to trip up Jesus. And that's what Matthew's pointing out here, looking for a reason to arrest him and kill him. So verse 16, it says, and they sent their disciples to him, to Jesus, along with the Herodians. Now, just as today. Uh, there are different factions within our major political parties. So there was two in their time. The Herodians 
were a, were not a religious party. They were not a religious sect. They they were a political party. They were a political in nature, who supported the Romans, and who also were uh, supporters of the Herod dynasty, the Herodian dynasty. Yeah, if you remember, who who it began with Herod the Great because he was great in making things, but he was pretty bad dude. Um, Herod the Great was the king who tried to kill baby Jesus. Remember that? Not so great. But he, along with the other Herods, Herod is a title, um, even though that was kind of their name, but uh, he, along with the other Herods, were descendants of of a guy named Esau. Remember in the Bible, Esau, Jacob and Esau, Jacob had a, had a brother named Esau. Well, Esau was after the flesh and all that stuff. Well, those people eventually became the Edomites. Although their father was Abraham, they would become an Arab nation along with the Ishmaelites and others. And so they were cousins, so to speak, of Jews. And so the Herodians were descendants of Esau. They were Edomites. And although Herod and his dynasty were part Jewish, mostly Arab, uh, they had they said they held the Judaism, but it was really just political. I mean, how many of us like can look at D.C. and everybody goes, yeah, I'm Catholic or I'm this or that. And they don't live by anything, any of the tenets. We see that going on. Same thing with the Herodians. It was all in. in yeah, I'm, I'm a Jew because I'm in a Jewish land and whatever. But they really had political aspirations. Uh, those who supported the rule of Herod were the Herodians. That's what they were. They're their political supporters. And, and you have to know that the Pharisees and the Herodians, uh, they were not cut from the same cloth. Remember, these two groups are going together to go to Jesus. They are they're nowhere near one another on the political scale. At all. The religious sect of the Pharisees, they were born out of the Maccabean revolt. Remember the Maccabean revolt? If you wonder what happens in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, well, the Greeks come in. Alexander the Great comes in and conquers everything. And so there's this great um, Hellenistic influence, a Greek influence upon all the cultures. And so, well, that swept into Israel. It swept into their worship. It swept into everything. And so there was this mixing of... um, Greek pagan worship with, with, um, you know, with, well, with Judaism and all this type of stuff. I can't get into it right now. I want to, but I won't. You're welcome. (laughs) But (laughs) so the Maccabeans revolted against this. They wanted purity in Israel. They didn't want all this nonsense going on and, and they all died because of it. A lot of them died because of it. And so what came out of that rebellion was a group called the Pharisees. Pharisee means the the set apart ones. How would you like to call yourselves the set apart ones? Well, that's what the church means, by the way. If you didn't know that, we are the ones who have been called out. We're the called out ones. You've been called out. You've been set apart by the Lord. But these guys were called out and you could see their bent was towards purity. They want a doctrinal purity when they want a religious purity. They didn't want to have anything to do with the outside influence, pagan Gentile people, get them away from us. Right? So they did not, they were not fans of the Romans. You could imagine. And they were not fans of those who liked the Romans. Can you imagine the Herodians on the other hand, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they were in cahoots with the Romans and uh, they were, they could care less about the law of Moses. Remember all the Herods, 
I mean, you could care less about the Romans. So Herod the Great goes ahead and sends, you know, all these young male children in Bethlehem to death because they were a threat to his power. Remember that? Well, his his predecessor, Herod the, Herod the Great's son, Herod Agrippa, he married his brother's wife, uh, Herodias. I mean, that should tell you things are going wrong when you got a lady named Herodias. But, and they put John the Baptist to death, <clears throat> right? Because he was a threat to their power, basically. That's Mark 6. And then his successor, Herod Antipas, the grandson of Herod the Great, he received the praise of people. Remember, standing in, in Acts 22, he's standing there in the Colosseum, and he just receives all this praise. He just thinks he's a, they go, you're, you're a god, not a man. You're a god, not a man. And he goes, yeah, that's kind of right. And then he talks to them, and God strikes him dead. Yeah, they, they didn't care about the law of Moses whatsoever, right? And so various kings all the way down, you know, these people are godless and all that kind of stuff. But here's the thing. The Pharisees and the Herodians, they joined forces. Why? Because they had one thing in common. Jesus was a threat to their power. He's a threat to everyone's power. He's a threat to your power. Because Jesus, when he comes in the scene, he's not asking for a slice of your life. He's not asking for part of the church or for a little bit. He wants everything, absolutely everything. It's an all or nothing submission when it comes to him. He is a total threat. And so they joined forces to try to trap him. In verse 16, it says, they were saying, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you don't care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. He's saying all they're saying all this stuff publicly about Jesus. Do you think they really mean that? No, they're saying it publicly because what they're saying is you're so truthful. You're so honest. You don't care about what people think because you're so about the truth. Now let's ask you a very divisive question in which you're going to answer truthfully and honestly. And we know your answer is not going to be caring about the consequences because you're just all about truth. That's what they're getting at. They're so sly. So they said, verse 17, tell us, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Since you're a beacon of truth, tell us what the truth is about this. You can see the trap, right? It was a gotcha question for two reasons. The Jews hated the Romans and, and they despised paying taxes to their occupiers. And on the other hand, Romans hated rebels. Romans hated anyone who threatened their power. And whoever was, was not going to pay their taxes was a threat to them. And they would come down with their boot on anyone who tried to usurp their flow. And so two things, the Jews hated the Romans, the Romans hated rebels. So how are you going to win? Should you pay taxes to Jesus? So if you tell the people not to pay taxes, Jesus would be going against Rome. And that would be a cause for arrest, immediate arrest, so, you know, insubordination, rebellion. Well, if Jesus tells the people to pay their taxes, what's going to happen? 
So uh, if Jesus t- uh, yeah, tells the people to pay taxes and he would appear by, to be supporting Rome and the people would no longer listen to him and follow him. You see, they, they, these people asking these questions, they didn't care about the truth. They, can't, they cared about their power and their questions were designed to pull people away from the truth and pull it towards them. Does that sound familiar about how anything is going on in this world today? Have you ever, like, I mean, TV is old school now, but have you ever watched an an interview, like, on any kind of news channel, as if anybody cares about the truth anymore? It's all positioning, and and people are asking gotcha questions, not because people are wanting to get to the truth of the matter, it's because they want to expose people's positions, because they know it will polarize them from one person to another, it'll pull people towards them and away from someone else. Listen, we should have nothing to do with that as Christians. We want the truth. Amen? That's who we are. We're people of the light. Don't play those games. So you see, tell us the truth, Jesus. Tell us the truth. Try to trip them up with his words. Before we get into Jesus' answer, I want to say, say a couple things that were on my heart here. There are people out there who seek to do the same to us. I pray we are not those people who seek to do that to others. Manipulate people into agreeing with us by gotcha questions and all that kind of stuff. It's disingenuous, right? But there are those that would seek to do the same to us on all kinds of issues where they don't care about the truth. They care about their cause and they're trying to frame things in a certain way to discredit us, to get us out of the way, to make us look crazy, to make us look way off to, you know, you know, (laughs) I mean, look at the media in every single aspect. Christians are always the villains. Christians are the haters. Christians are the ones who don't love, don't care, who are maniacal, who are undercutting, who are, we're the villains. Say it isn't so. We're the unvirtuous people in society. That's who you are. You're the unvirtuous people. You are the unloving. You're the unkind. You don't have a real understanding of grace or truth or love and all that kind of stuff. And so we as Christians, we face a constant tension. There is a real tension like Jesus is facing here. If we are Christians in that, on the one hand, we should never be ashamed of the gospel and the truth that the scriptures proclaim. We should never be ashamed of those things. Paul said, do not be ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he says, for it is the power of salvation for the Jew and the Gentile, right? I'm not ashamed of the truth of the gospel of who Jesus is and our condition before him and what we must do and what he's calling us to and the way that he's made. It's, it's the truth. It's so beautiful and it's so right and it's so lofty and it's come to us. Don't be ashamed of it as the light shines in the darkness. Never be ashamed of it, for it is the power. Amen. Nor should we be ashamed of the truth that God says about things, the way we're made, male and female in his image, what marriage is, what family is, all these things. 
Obviously, those dialogues change over time as the culture shifts. On the other hand, we need to be wise concerning truth. We need to be wise. Jesus sent them out and said, you be harmless as doves and wise as serpents. Probably the other way around, right? Wise as serpents, harmless as doves. And we'll see the wisdom of Jesus in his response. But one of the most unwise things that I can do or we can do is open our mouths when we're not in the spirit. When we're not, when we're reacting to something because we're so frustrated with it or whatever it might be. And, and, it, and our answers come out kind of attacking and unloving and defensive. I've never had this issue, but I know that you all experienced it. I've seen it in you, but not me. So when we're not ready to give a reasonable response to the things that we believe, the defense of our faith and, you know, and I think we need to know the word of God and to know how to use the word of God, how to use the sword, not just to cut off people's ears, right? Hopefully not to cut off people's ears, but to insert truth into darkness, truth into the lie at the appropriate time and appropriate way. We need to become skilled in that. And by the way, this doesn't mean we need, we're going to be perfect. That's another lie we need to be careful of is that we're going to be perfect in our conversations with everybody that we're going to perfectly explain things that have perfect knowledge and all of that. How many of you struggle with that? I feel like I got an, I don't know what I don't know. And therefore I'm not even going to try. You never get on the bike and you never fall off and you never learn to ride. The enemy just wants to keep you. I don't know. Immobile. But we do need to be bold in our communication. We need to pray for boldness. Paul, at the end of his apostles, asked to be bold while he's a prisoner in change. He says, pray for me. I need boldness. One of his epistles, he says that. And so we need to ask the Lord to teach us and, and to make us bold by his spirit and to help me communicate when I feel I have fear, to let faith overcome my fear and circumstances. Anybody else say, amen, I need those things? And not be swayed by our inadequacies and use those as excuses, right? But on the other hand, there's a time to be silent. There is a time to be silent. And we need to know this as well because of the gotcha questions. Because of the nature of the interactions we might be dealing with. There is a time to be silent, a time not to give an answer that they're looking for because they're not concerned with the truth. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 6, remember he's talking to his disciples before he sends them out. He says, listen, do not give to dogs what is holy. Guess what the verse before that was? Do not judge lest you be judged. We all love to quote that verse. Don't judge. That means be quiet. I can do whatever I want. Okay. Then he turns around and immediately says, do not give to dogs. What is holy? Wait a second. Who are the dogs? I don't judge. We know that he's saying, be discerning with your judgment. Be discerning with what's going on there. 
So he's saying, do not give the dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, before swine. Why? Lest they trample them underfoot and turn back and attack you. There's a time not to speak the truth to power. There's a time not to open your mouth. There's a time to refrain. Why? Well, Jesus is saying, don't give what is precious to people who don't value it. And then there's a tension of, well, how do I discern whether or not people are valuing it or not? Right. You got to be in step with the spirit. You got to be in connection with the vine because he's going to run you into people who might be, let's just say a Paul (laughs) zealous, killing people, Christians, and yet you're to be a witness to that person. Listen, we were all lost and antagonistic to God, either through our indifference or through our hostility towards him. And then the Lord comes into us and he begins to work on our hearts, but then he brings people to do that. And those conversations are often difficult and they don't have all the answers and they're muddy and they're weird as God is starting to formulate truth in someone's heart. And we need to be open to be used and to be wise in those situations. And so to walk alongside with someone who needs it. But on the other hand, someone who's just trying to get a political point or to point or to point out that you're, you're a homophobe or you're all these types of things when it's just not going to be fruitful whatsoever. There's a time to be quiet. So we need to be discerning. And that just means we need to be connected to the vine and know and ask him when we need to speak and when we not need to not speak and to learn that as we go to try it, to step out into it. And God will teach you as you begin to get on the bicycle and fall off a bunch of times. Amen. So get on the bicycle and start falling off and start learning. (laughs) Amen. Yes. So these men were dogs. These men were the pigs. They They were saying flowery words. They were there. But what did they want to do with him? Take what he said and kill him. That's what they were seeking. And so it says in verse 18, but Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why? Put me to the test, you hypocrites. <laughs> Turns around and exposes them for what they are. They didn't really care about the truth. They didn't really, those things he said about him were not genuine. They were trying to trip him up. You hypocrites. And so Jesus exposed their hearts in front of everyone. Verse 19. He says, show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Now the tax in question here was the poll tax. If you look in your Bible notes, you can, you can read about this, but basically a, ta- a tax levied by Rome on the, every Jew once a year. How many of you enjoy taxes for the life of me? I don't understand why people go, Oh yeah, let's increase our taxes. I'm, I'm sorry. Just in me like what? I mean, there's just something natural of like, let's give our money to people who mismanage it. But I'm just saying, that's, that's my own personal thing, right? So I've got that going on. And so we all have these biases that we have. Can you imagine being under an occupation as a Jew, and then you're forced once a year to pay taxes to your occupiers, and all the proceeds go directly to their occupation of you? That's what the poll tax was. And so if we've got our little things that we've got, imagine that. That's all I'm saying. 
The Jews hated this tax with a vengeance because it went directly to support Roman occupation. Now, I absolutely love our law enforcement. I love supporting. I love the roads and clean air and energy and all those things that taxes do go towards. And I think it's amazing and wonderful and all of that. So I'm not a, you know, I want to live on, you know, with potholes everywhere, all that kind of stuff. That's not, that's not where I'm at. But when something is just given towards something that's evil, there's a frustration. You know what I mean? Does anybody else feel that? So should you pay that tax? Should you pay, give this money to the Roman occupiers? What does Jesus say about this? This is a hard question. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness is on the inscription? So, hey, they brought him a denarius, which was a day's wage, by the way. It was a day's wage that was needed to be given once a year. And so they said, hey, whose likeness is on this? And what do they say? Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar, Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. God's. And here's the core issue. The coin was Caesar's. Jesus said, give what Caesar is asking for. Pay the tax. If you want to go into that in Romans, Romans talks about paying taxes and the, and what they what they go towards and all that kind of stuff. Here's the thing is we are not responsible with what the government does with what they do. We have a voice in it, but we are not ultimately responsible. They are responsible to God. I know this is hard. It doesn't mean we don't have a say. It doesn't mean we don't speak, but we are to be submitted to the authority, but the authority has to answer to the authority. Does that make sense? God's going to judge righteously. But in our hearts is not to be a spirit of rebellion. It does not mean when the government asks us to do things that go against what God says that we do that. And I understand there's a connection here. But in principle, Jesus is saying the government has a right to extract tax from you. Pay it. That's what it's saying. Give him what is his. But here's the main issue of what he wants. He's talking about God. But he says also there, and this is, this is the main issue, but God also has a dominion. He also has a right. Give to Caesar what Caesar's, but are you giving to God? What is God's? And the implication there is whose image is stamped on us. Whose image are we made in? Hello? Whose image are we made in church? We are made in his image. So what are we supposed to render to God? Us. Submit to your authority, but are you submitted to me? Are you giving me my due? Are you mind, body, soul, and spirit submitted to the God who made you. You see, these guys were concerned with superficial things and they were leading the nation in superficial things. But Jesus says, I want your heart. Give me your heart. Have you rendered to God your heart? 
God has ultimate dominion, even over Caesar, over the seen and unseen world, over his creation, render to him what is his. And that should be our focus. I quickly want to move through these other verses here. Verse 22. And when they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. Verse 23. And that same day, the Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. That is why they are sad, you see. So, come on. Got to keep doing that. They are the very liberals of the group. We got the ultra conservatives. Now you have the ultra liberals. That's, that's what's going on here. They had a very liberal interpretation of scripture. They didn't hold the Old Testament to be true. They hold the, the first five books of the Testament to be true. But they were very selective in that. And they disregarded all the prophecies and the, the, the law and the prophets. They did not believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in uh, the resurrection. And so uh, they rejected human traditions and they were repulsed by legalism. So they're, they're, they're on the other side of the spectrum. Does that make sense? I think we can all kind of relate to that a little bit. Again, they were the aristocrats of the day and they held political aspirations. They were the ones who were in charge of the priesthood and the temple and the money changing. These were those guys. They were a majority of the elders. And by the way, it's usually the case that the ones who tell you do whatever you want are the ones who are usually in power in a free society, but in an autocratic society, it's the ones who crush you. So we, we always who, who kind of are in power. So it's, it's a, it's a messed up place. Men, men expose their sin in various ways. One, do whatever you want. Just make sure I'm in charge. The other ones are, you're going to do what I want. I'm going to kill you if you don't do it. So, um, it's all pretty, it's the, the spectrum is here. So the Pharisees who say there is no resurrection, uh, sorry, the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection come to Jesus. And they ask him a question. Then they don't really care about the answer. They want to trap him, right? They say, verse 24, saying, teacher, Moses, uh, teacher, uh, Moses said, and remember, they only adhere to the first five books of the Bible. If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry his widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, I'm going to condense this way down. You're going, what in the world is this weirdness? Well, De- Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10 is the reference you're going to want to go back to. And it's basically uh, the meaning. It comes from a meaning called uh, the husband's brother. It's it's liberate, uh, liberate ma- marriage. Basically, the law says that if you had brothers, two brothers, three brothers, four brothers, whatever, they're all living together as they often did in those, those times. Families lived together and they shared property and all that kind of stuff and uh, and one of them died who was married and he didn't have kids it was up to his brother who was was not married whatever brother was not married I think from the oldest to the youngest it was their responsibility to marry this woman and to give her kids an heir and that heir's name would be of their dad's name who died and they would be responsible. They would now take over their property. So their name wouldn't be struck from Israel. So that's, that was in the law of Moses. It wasn't a command that they had to do it, but it came with a strong, really, really strong. Like if you decide not to do this older brother, uh, you're going to, your house is going to be shamed kind of thing. And shame was a very important, powerful tool back then. So what would happen is if a brother said, no, I, I, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to marry my brother's, you know, wife, you know, don't want to do that. 
Well, she could take him to the elders at the city gate and uh, they would try to persuade him. And if he didn't want to do that, uh, well, what would happen is she would he would she would take off his sandal and and I think slap him with him or give it to him and spit in his face. And his house would be called something like he who held the sandal or something like that. Uh, many of you don't remember. Some of you do. But remember when the, the statue of Saddam Hussein fell in Baghdad? They were all taking off their sandals and smacking Saddam Hussein in the face. That Everybody like in America is going, what is going on there? Same thing going on. A sign of the bottom of the foot, the dirtiest part, a sign of great shame. And so that's the idea there. By the way, this is what happened in the story of Boaz and Ruth. Boaz was one of the closest relatives and he says she want, they want to get married and, she, and he goes, wait a second, I'm not the closest relative. And then the guy didn't want to do it and they did the whole shoe thing. She didn't spit at him, I guess, but you got the idea. So the idea, every Jew would understand, oh, this brother marries and then it's their responsibility. That's what's going on here, right? So the teacher, verse, uh, teacher Moses said, verse 24, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Verse 25, now there were seven brothers among us. So it brings up this crazy scenario. The first married and died and having no offspring left his wife to his brother. And so to the second and third down to the seventh. The moral of the story is this woman, like you probably better to take the sandal. <laughs> You're going to die, right? No, I'm, just, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah. Okay. But that's the hypothetical they gave, right? Couldn't help it. It was low hanging fruit. But <laughs> verse 27 so after them, oh, the, then the woman dies, right? The woman dies. And so she dies. And here's their gotcha question. Verse 20, in the resurrection, which they don't even believe in. Therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. In other words, they were all married to her. Whose wife are they going to be? This is a profound statement that Jesus says here. Verse 29, he answers them. What does he say to them? You are wrong. <laughs> These are the priesthood of Israel, right? This is the priesthood of Israel here. You are wrong because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. You don't know what the Bible says, and you don't know the power of God. Two very important things, profound. And he explains why verse 30 for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. This is something that we all wonder at one time or another. Does marriage go beyond the grave? I know we have these expressions, love, we're, we're together forever and all that kind of stuff. How many of us have said that, you know, kind of in a, you know, I'm going to love you forever. It's like, no, actually, when you die, you're no longer married. Uh, the Mormons would say yes. Their theology is that if you get married in their temple, uh, your husband and wife, then you are going to be married forever and you're going to get your own planet and have eternal sex and populate that with spirit babies who are going to then worship you because you are now gods of that planet. That's their theology. So Jesus says to the Mormons and to the Sadducees, no, you're wrong. You don't know the scriptures. You don't know the power of God. Jesus says, no, 
Jesus says that in the resurrection, that's the time when God resurrects the just and the unjust, the just to eternal life, the unjust to eternal damnation to hell. There's no marriage. So we got to get that in our theology. Marriage is for now. Marriage is for this age. Marriage is for this time. And it has a purpose and it has a point and it has a picture to it. That's very important to know because marriage isn't our idea. It's God's idea. And it's a picture of him in his creation. And I'm not going to go over that right now, but that's why when I talk about marriage between being between a man and a woman, that is a really important sacred thing because God made it that way. And he points it out to reflect him that way. And any other thing is a perversion of that. And he's very serious about that. So it's rooted in that. But Jesus says no to the Sadducees. So when I often perform marriages, couples would declare the vow till death do I part. Right? I'll often have them repeat that, although say that, meaning that only death will break this union. Paul uses that picture in Romans 7 when he says our relationship with the law Uh, We're no longer under the law when we die to the law because we are with Christ. And he uses that as a picture. In other words, we can move on. We can remarry to another, to grace, to God, right? Well, you're free to remarry when you die. By the way, if you're Christian only in the Lord, Romans, uh, first Corinthians seven, go read it. We're no longer married when we die. Secondly, in the age to come, there is no marriage. That's for now. It's not for then. And then he says, we're going to be, like the angels. Did he tell you you're going to be angels? No, we don't get a little harp in a cloud. And by the way, that's not what the angels look like. (laughs) Cherubim are freaky. Like they are not like little chubby little kids with little bows and arrows and all that stuff. They got like wings, like sets of wings and foreheads and like eyes all over them. They are. Yeah, that's the, that's (laughs) That's scary. (laughs) We're not going to be like them. We're going to be as the angels. Well, what does he mean? He's not saying you're going to be angels. He's saying, listen, angels don't get married. It's going to be different. When you're there, it's going to be a totally different scenario. That's going to be a different age, a different kingdom. Things are different. Your bodies are going to be different. It's going to be a different time. Today is the day of the physical. Tomorrow is the day of the spiritual. This is what he's talking about. And so for you love birds out there, enjoy the grace that God has given you in this life. Amen. Marriage is awesome. And he's created it for now. Enjoy it. And uh, it's absolutely fitting. And, but what is coming, there will be no complaints. It'll be perfect for the age to come. And so they didn't understand the scriptures, but they didn't understand the power of God. What's he talking about? Verse 31, what's the power of God? And as for the resurrection of the dead, you have not read what was said to you by God. I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. He's quoting from the burning bush passage where he's saying, I am, I I am like always have been, always will be. I am, I exist. I eternally exist. And I am the God of these people who died on earth, but are alive. Now I am the God of Abraham. And notice he doesn't just say, I am the God 
of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I am God three times. I am God. I am God. I am God. You've got the picture of the Trinity in there of the living. And if you go to John eight, you'll see that Jesus gets in trouble because he says before Abraham existed, I am ego and me. I am the eternal one. Um, anyways, it's something else, but they didn't know the scriptures nor the power of God. Listen, God is the God has power over death. He's the God of the living. They don't believe in the supernatural angels or resurrection. They're wrong. And so are anyone who doesn't believe in that. He's alive. And I've shared with before. It's like, if I were to tell you right now, there are signals going through this room and there are things that are being said and understood. And, and there are stories being told and things good and bad and all this kind of stuff going on. You go, what are you talking about? If we were living 200 years ago or whatever, hundred years ago, but all of a sudden, you know, I understand the analogy is not perfect. I pull out one of these and I can connect to what is unseen and make it seem. And so too, there's a spiritual world. There's a spiritual thing going on. And this is what Jesus came to do. He is the image of the invisible God. And he came down to show us God is spirit. And this is how he is. And this is how he lives. And this is what he demands. And I have died for you so that you might be with him forever. But he's the God of the living. John eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He is the resurrection. He is the power over death. And he was standing in front of them. He said, you don't understand it. And when the crowds heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. And so first the Pharisees, the Herodians, and then the Sadducees. Now verse 34 quickly. But when the Pharisees heard they had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer asked him, teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law. And he said to them, you shall love the Lord, your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two, the commandments of the, uh, sorry, of the, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Listen, the rabbis had totally complicated everything. They'd taken the whole Old Testament, all the laws, they put them into 613 laws. You had 365 negative laws, in other words, thou shalt not, and then 248 of them were positive things you needed to do. And they all were in disagreement about which were the greatest. And they divided it into other sections. You can imagine the legalists were having fun with this, right? And so that was a gotcha question. We all think this, what do you say? And he lays it down. He says, this is the greatest to love your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That is to fulfill the law. But here's the thing. That's impossible. It's impossible for you to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. It's impossible. That's what all the law summed up in. He's just giving you the, the bottom line. It's impossible. But here's the thing. The one in whom that was all embodied, the one who loved God with all his mind, soul, 
strength and loved his neighbor as himself was standing right in front of them. He said, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And he did. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. Verse 42. What do you think about the Christ? (laughs) Whose son is he? Whose son is he? Great question. Whose son is the Christ to be? And so he said to them, he starts to quote Psalm 110. Well, they said some, the son of David, King David. Jesus gives a follow-up question, verse 43. And he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under my feet. Psalm 110, David is prophesying about the Messiah and he calls his descendant Lord. How many of you call your kids Lord? No, you don't. So how can Jesus's, how can David's descendant be his son if he's Lord over him? That's a great question. Pretty confusing. And the point being that Jesus was making Verse 45, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? The point being that the Messiah is, is actually a physical descendant of David. Therefore he is a son of David, but in that sense, he's a son of David, but David himself declared him to be Lord, letting us know that the Messiah is also the son of God. He is the son of David, but he's also the son of God, son of God, son of man. So you see, we're just looking at the Messiah to be, they were just looking at the Messiah to be the son of David, but they were blind to the fact that even the scriptures declared that he was the son of God. And it was the son of God who was standing before them right there. Both the son of David and the son of God, verse 46. And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. No kidding. (laughs) No kidding. He was full of truth. He was full of light. He loved the father with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. And he loved you with an everlasting love. And that he laid down his life while we were yet sinners. And all they could do was seek to destroy him because they were darkness. They didn't know the scriptures. They didn't know the power of God that he would rise again. You know, we're in a time where people will hear what they want to hear. They will go to what they want to hear. They will hear what they want to hear. They will develop a theology about God and understanding of God that like these men suits their own end. I think we're all guilty of it. Anyone else? You make God who you want him to be or not be to suit your own end. But Jesus has come. He has died. He rose again, just as the scripture said, they foretold that he would do all these things. He revealed the power of God to us in the miracles that he did and the prophecy he fulfilled and the fact that he rose again and there's more to come. And he has sent his spirit into his church. That's you. That's me. Those who have believed upon Jesus Christ have received his spirit by grace And he has sent us into the world where he is calling people to himself through you. 
Isn't that amazing? And by the way, he's just doing what he wants, but he works through us just as he worked through Israel. He's working through us now. And so hear his voice. Turn from sin, turn to him. Anybody. Jesus prays in Matthew eleven twenty five 25 through 27. He says at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and have revealed them to little children. Did you hear the words of the creator? He's hidden them from the wise and the understanding. He's revealed to them, to the little children. Those who hear him must receive him as little children. He says, yes, Father, for such was your glorious will. And all things have been handed over to me by my father. And no one knows the son except for the father. And no one knows the father except for the son. And anyone whom the son chooses to reveal him. No one knows God unless God reveals himself to them. And he proclaimed then Jesus in that prayer. Read verse 28. And what does he do? He cries out in a loud voice. Come to me. All who are who who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. The call is there. He calls out to us. Come to me. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and I'm lowly in heart. I'm humble and you will find rest for your soul. Why? For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I'm not like these turkeys. I love you. Come to me. So come to Jesus, little one. Amen. Let him gather you into his arms. Let him teach you, build you up and send you out. Amen. Lord, help us to not have hard hearts. Help us to be open to your word. And Lord, as we've received it now, God, let us enter the mission filled with joy. Lord, we're weak, but Lord, you are greater. We pray that your strength would be within us this week. We thank you that your love was greater than our sin. Thank you that your blood has cleansed us. And now fill us with your Holy Spirit again, Lord, in the sense that we would go and be bold for you. Teach us as we go, Lord. And may many people see your light and come to you. May they see the love and the truth in you and through us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Lord bless all of you. Have a wonderful week. We made it through the end of the chapter. Woo! I know it was long, but that was purposeful. All right. God bless you.